gong anymore i mean that was like i feel like you should be better about hitting it is what should happen when we were like first envisioning the show and someone sent us a gong i thought the gong was going to be it like we were going to use the gong all the time and people would be like tweeting at us about like the gong like it was going to be like the centerpiece i mean it's our only sound effect other than me like cackling like we don't really have anything other than the gong between the two of us i'm the one that cackles well yeah but we really let the gong fall by the wayside, I feel like. Okay, well, so here's the deal. Okay. Felt good, honestly. Good. <laughs> because... But, like, we set this thing out. I feel like this is something listeners should know about. Like, we set this thing out every time, and we rarely hit it. Like, it's always right there, ready to be hit. What we haven't Eric had a means... gongable moment in, like... What Eric means is that I don't hit it because he previously we would take turns and he would forget to hit it and I was better at hitting it. I abstain from the gong. I may I conscientiously object. Well today from the gong. <laughs> well today it's your turn <laughs> to have the gong. Yeah. No, I'm gonna I hit want it all the time. Nothing to do with it, but I want a gong full episode. Mm-hmm. Hey, a gong hey, full Laura, episode. how are you today? I'm doing great. Oh man, I couldn't couldn't hear you. Um <laughs> so with that we'll say welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. I should have hit it there, too. I know. I was was like, I tensed up like an animal about to run from a predator. I I was like, ah. I know. Um, I was was totally expecting you to do that. We've got, I think, a a pretty good show for you today. A bunch of different stuff, some serious, some fun. Um, But before we get to that, how about the long list of things we need to run down? Yeah. So welcome to March, everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, This is going to be the first time you're hearing from us this month uh, because last week we delayed and then missed because one of us was moving. So Eric has a brand new office to enjoy. Is it painted Power Move Blue? Oh my God, it's more like a horrible mustard yellow. Nice. Like with the color you imagine when like Colonel Mustard is like clubbing that person with the candlestick. <laughs> like that's the color. When of you the when office. you're when you were like a kid and all you could read is colonel <laughs> instead it's of colonel. colonel. It's colonel mustard yellow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's good though. No, I'm like out of. How's it my... feel to be out of your bedroom? Oh, see, that's the thing is, I'm now a professional adult who doesn't work from his bedroom in his pajamas. No, you just work from your basement. Right in my pajamas. Right. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where, um, yeah, no, it's good to be able to go like to a different room in the house. Like mm-hmm. I, cause I was previously working from an apartment with two rooms, you know, like, and that had been. Really, I think in retrospect, like I picture it now, and this was something I was doing like, you know, a week ago. Now I look at that and I'm like, wow, I don't know how I survived that. I that do. Was really... <laughs> you would send me text messages being like, if I don't get out of this apartment, I'm going to kill somebody. I haven't talked to somebody in three days. I never talked What's to happening? anyone. What's happening? No, and that, that problem isn't actually solved. Like now I'm just, now I just don't talk to anyone in the basement of my house. Now, but see, the difference though is now I can be like a cranky homeowner. Yes. Like now I can like, instead of, just being cranky, I can go like take it out on like the kids on the lawn. Yeah, you know, I can like shout at people to yeah. get up. Or you yeah. can even be on a lawn. Yeah. So you now have a lawn, so you can be crankier just because you have grass you need to take care of. Right. Yeah. I am 
actually really, really um, resentful of you mm, for okay, having, <laughs> for moving. So we, we both bought houses this year, uh, both theoretically in the winter, but I'm very resentful of you for moving after we got the worst of the snow. Yeah. Like, have you shoveled? Oh, I shoveled. It was the first thing I did. We, like, got our house. And we like like literally, I didn't even walk in. Like we closed. They handed us the keys. And then you shoveled. And I walked in the door, and I like set my stuff down, and was handed a shovel. Well, remember the first time that I had to shovel my house? You got stuck here and had to spend the night yeah, because was it was so that was snowy. A good, that was a good episode, though. That was a fun. We episode. made for, that made for good print run content. We did, which is the only thing that matters. So yeah. it was fine. That so summer's coming. So folks better watch out <laughs> yeah. because there's just a whole bunch of dreck coming. Yeah, but anyway, the office is like this horrible yellow that needs to get redone, probably. Nice. Um, yeah. So well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Speaking of um, horrible dreck coming this summer, <laughs> just kidding. I'm still talking about. <laughs> I've created a beast. Mm-hmm. Like, I've created a monster. Yeah, I'm going to take that away from you at nope. some point. Um, we actually have a lot of announcements, not just that uh, Eric's office is colonel mustard. Um, could be power move blue, but it's not. Mm-hmm. You can you can change that. I've got, like, half a gallon of it left. You oh, can yeah? have it. Yeah. You can I will not. T- I don't need your leftovers to execute a power move. <laughs> Wouldn't take my TV. Yeah, I'm not spying Wouldn't your damn TV. Wouldn't take my box. Okay, she, so I, this is the thing. So no, 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 no. The, the <laughs> listeners need to know. I'm. Um, she's Do trying they? to. She's trying to sell me her television. And I, for, at first, she said, "Do you want my TV?" And I was like, "Yeah, I want your TV." And, but then it became, quickly became clear that I wasn't allowed to just have the TV. I would have to pay for it. And I'm not. I'm not paying for the TV. It's so a beautiful television. It's, well, not that beautiful. So it we'll works see. well. Anyway, anyway, please continue. Please continue with the rundown, Laura. Thank <sighs> you. Okay, so we have a query episode coming this week, mm-hmm. followed by um, the first pages and you know our our third special episode, writing by reading. But we have we have something really important. Yeah. Uh, we reached a milestone here at the print run offices. We did. We did. Um, that milestone is that we have uh, broken a hundred patrons on Patreon. Yeah, that's. Um, that would have been a good time for you to hit the gong as well. Yeah, but see, you don't make the rules. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, no. We hit we hit a hundred patrons, which is. Incredible, first of all. Thank you so much for signing up and listening to the show. But one thing we promised that when we did that is that we would do a one-off episode on anything you guys want. Yeah. And so what what we'll do is this week, since we've, you know, some suggestions have been kind of filtering in, is we'll make a poll out of the best suggestions we've gotten, you know, the things. And everybody can vote. And then after some time, you know, we'll just go with what you guys asked for. Like, and we'll put up one more Patreon episode this month and... Yeah. And that'll be that. You could but. ask us all sorts of things. I mean, you can have us read more Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> you can have us talking about our favorite books. You can have us answering agent questions that maybe a, you know, 280 character tweet won't quite cover. From what you I can, can tell, yeah. everyone's being really pragmatic about it. Yeah. They're like, we want to hear about this, you know, incredibly like smart and useful and savvy thing yeah. that like professional writers want to hear about. And I was sort of expecting, like, I think one of the, one of the suggestions was like the butt episode. <laughs> I don't even know what that meant, but it was just, we were going to like design an episode around that. Yeah. We could do like something like how the ringer does where it's like an objective 
like ranking for like very like weird criteria of like the best butts in all of movies mm-hmm. or you know so it doesn't that's matter. what people come to the podcast for is for <laughs> you and me to rank some asses you know that's we could <laughs> what is the what is the tv show where that happens in a publishing house like what's that is oh. it like what's it called i don't know is it i don't know we should watch that but show, like we, we could should do watch an episode that, that and show. like do an episode where we yeah. like live watch that yeah, and yeah, yeah. like comment like mystery yeah. science theater 3000 like we right. can literally do anything anyway the point is like send us either over by however it is you email get tweet, in touch with et yeah. send us suggestions and we'll get it queued up and we'll make one because we are incredibly grateful and we've that... got a really stocked liquor cabinet <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it'll be good. Yeah, so send it to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com or at us at printrunpodcast, mm-hmm. um, and we'll get that uh, we'll get that vote going sometime this week. So I'm pretty excited. It's been something we've been looking forward to for quite a while. Um, moving on. Yeah. Away from butts. Uh-huh. Last week was International Women's Day. Mm-hmm. Which I will have you know, Eric, uh-huh. as a woman, I received no fewer than three emails about bra sales. Did you feel appreciated on International I Women's Day? didn't feel appreciated on International Women's Day. I hmm. would have liked, you know, instead of it being like a um, like cool replacement for Valentine's Day, yeah. I would have preferred where it was like, here, have like, you know, 30% off on Roxanne Gay's book, Bad Feminist. But right. instead it's like... Buy this bralette from us for 55% off. There's free shipping. Happy International yeah. Women's Day and your boobs. Right. Yeah. Like, that wasn't yeah. great. Um, but one thing that was very good did come out of International Women's Day. Uh-huh. Um, you've heard us talk on air about the Bechtel test. Okay. So what I want you to do yes. before you tell us what this new thing is, I want you to tell us about the Bechtel test okay. for a second. So the Bechtel test um, is was created in the 80s. Um, it was, it's, it's called the Bechtel test. It's named after a woman named Alison Bechtel, mm. who is a lesbian comic book writer and illustrator. Sure. And she had this, um, she had this comic strip and in it, there are two women who are talking about going to see a movie. And in it, they're going through, you know, in the panels to panels to panels. They're talking about, you know, th- one of them will only go see a movie if um, there are two female characters in the movie who talk to each other about something other than a man. Right. So it's a pretty simple three step criteria. They don't even have to be named characters, although now in the year of our Lord, 2018, um, we can probably name the women. They're named them. Yeah. They're named uh, they're, or they should be named. So that's the Bechtel test. Right. It was originally used for film. Um, surprisingly, even in 2017, more than half of the uh, films released by major studios failed the Bechtel test. And so basically the idea here is to provide like a more quantitative means of discussing whether or not a book or a piece of art is doing a good job of like representing women right. as opposed to just using them as tokens or side characters or things right. like that. Right. Right. And kind of just like calling attention yep. to, you know, where women are and where women aren't. Yeah. Because I right. think that in people's minds, it's a lot more equal than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Um, so kind of the be- one of the best things I think about the Bechtel test is, is that over the last, you know, 30 years or so, we have had a bunch of other tests <clears throat> pop up. You know, there's the DuVernay test named after Ava, Ava DuVernay, who has been on all the news right now because she uh, she directed the new Wrinkle in Time movie, oh. um, which I haven't yet seen. But, no. you know, I will at some point. Um, but so there's that about, you know, good non-tokenized characters of color. There's a bunch of other tests in there. There's, you know, big kind of changes to the Bechtel test to make it a little bit more updated and a little bit more stringent. Um, but so the um, there was a, so a woman named Clarkisha Kent created the Kent test, yeah. which is, again, for movies. But I like to apply all these tests to um, books as well, because first of all, books are it's easier to pass because you've got a lot more content in a book than you do in a movie. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about the other reasons later. But. So the Kent test is a specific test for a woman or a femme of color, right? So it's a character who is a, you know, woman of color, a femme of color. And this one is actually really interesting and really different. Um, This one has seven questions where each will give you a point. And then there's kind of a scaled system which will have you kind of be able to test your piece of art for whether it has abysmal representation for women of color, pathetic representation, (laughs) milling to fair representation, (laughs) sound representation, or strong representation. So, I mean, it's it's sort of, and we'll link out to, you know, we're not going to like read the document to you verbatim, but, and we'll, but we'll link out to it. I think we actually already did when it came out, but, um, so the idea here, once again, is just to more specifically provide a framework and maybe even some vocabulary for discussing whether or not a book is doing a good enough job of representing uh, women of color in literature, and I guess, or I guess in media, because this is primarily designed for something that isn't a book. But yeah, the PDF like, has a, a picture <clears throat> of Hollywood and like a film reel yeah. and a ticket on it. So like clearly this is this is for film. Um, but I like to take whatever is for film and apply it to books. So let me let me ask you this because people who um, are generally resistant to this sort of thing will mm-hmm. always ask. They'll always do the same thing with this and with any other like institution meant to kind of lead things in a kind of of a progressive way. They'll say, "Well, why do we need this?" You know, and obviously the answer, first of all, is well because there's mm-hmm. not enough representation and stuff. But then they'll say. Well, how is this going to fix it? How is like putting, you know, how is putting a stringent, you know, criteria to art the sort of thing that's going to actually change anything for better? How how is this something other than just making all art uniform? You see the kind of you hear the sort of like conservative arguments against or my it. book isn't about right, this. Right, right. Why like, do I need to pass exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like you get into all these like people throw counterpoints at this test and other tests all the time. And my question to you um, and I think what we're going to get into here is, like, what do you say to all that? Because we, I think anyone with any sort of, you know, bone in their body that wants to see, you know, greater representation in publishing, which if you're listening, at this point, if you're listening to this show, you're probably someone who feels that way. You've already had the Kool-Aid. Right, like, <laughs> like, you've turned us off well before now. Um, but um, the question is, like, how does a, like, how does a test like this work 
for this because none of us actually want this sort of thing to be so mechanical. Like this feels very at its face. You know, there's a point system here, right? There's a grading system here. It can feel very stiff and rigid and mechanical. And that's not how we're supposed to think about art. And you can see all the whiny talking points coming. Right. And so my question to you is like, what's, what's your answer to that? Like, why is something that feels this stiff on its face taken without a context? And that's probably the biggest part of it is these things get pulled out of context and interpreted in bad faith. Um, But like, What's your, like? How do you respond to that sort of thing? That's a really good question. Um, I I think at first, you know, I I come to this test with a very like deep knowledge of of the Bechdel test because it's something that I've used and required for a long time in in the works that I use. Um, this this one though, even though it has a point system and it has these like set seven. There are numbers, Laura. It's art. How can there be numbers? <laughs> there are numbers, but so here's <laughs> but so here's what it is though. Um, there are numbers, but they're also engaging in. This test is engaging in kind of a larger conversation or larger ideas about content that are in no way quantifiable, right? So, for example, the first question in the Kent test is that a woman or femme of color must not be solely a walking stereotype or trope, right? And so the answer to this question where you say, okay, I pass, or okay, I fail, um, if you pass, you get that one point, you have to critically engage and like take a moment with and work. with your work <clears throat> in kind of, in, in a not quantifiable context, you know? It's like, okay, is my... You know, is my Asian character a dragon lady? You know, is my black character a sassy black friend? Yeah. You know, like those. Are you getting past stereotype and trope? Right. Yeah. And But so so it takes, so the approach to it is quantifiable. But what it does is, is you can't just like answer that super quickly. Like you actually have to stop and think about it and engage with it and kind of think, okay, what other tropes might I have just unwittingly put into this project? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I think that gets in a lot of ways to what I feel like is the most value for these tests, because um, not every test is going to be, you know, like passing this test isn't the marker of whether your book is good or not. Right. You know, there there are some projects that just shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, for example, going back to the Bechtel test, because it's a lot simpler and a lot older, um, a lot of people were using the Bechtel test as a marker for like feminism or a marker for quality. Um, Which they're not in, I think the point, they're not direct synonyms. No, 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 not at all. And the Bechtel test, you can still pass the Bechtel test while being a super misogynistic piece of work. Mm -hmm. You can be a really shitty project. Like, you can be a really bad movie and still pass the Bechdel test. Like, yeah. Or you can be a good movie and fail. For example, and this is a really commonly used one in the past couple of years, um, Moonlight, mm-hmm. the movie that won last year's mm-hmm. Academy Award for Best Picture, doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Right. But it also shouldn't pass the Bechdel test because it's a movie about a black gay man. It's about men. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. movie about men. Yeah. And it's – and, like, to say – that, you know, bummer, this movie is bad because it doesn't pass the Bechtel test, so I won't watch it, diminishes all of the other ways in which it is 
it in which it is it is positive and affirming and and making wonderful changes and and showing representation in this community so i think these tests they're all a little bit different and they're all used for slightly different things but i think that they're that their benefit is really used in two areas number one starting very internally i think they're really good as a tool Mm-hmm. You know, like after you're done writing your project, an editing tool. when you say an tool, editing tool, yeah, yeah, specify yes, there, specifically so. an editing tool. Right. So like when you finish your book, go to it. And once, you know, you're done removing, you know, the dumb adverbs or, you know, making sure you don't like abuse commas or whatever, yeah. um, go through it and say, OK, I'm going to take the Kent test. I'm going to take the Bechtel test. I'm going to do this and see if I fail or if I pass. And if you fail, you know, that. I think is a moment, a really interesting and and powerful moment where you as a creator can go, okay, is this failing because it's, it only could fail or is it failing because I'm writing a closed, you know, a closed setting at a space station and I just don't think like unwitted, like subconsciously, I just don't think that women should be in space. Right. You know what I mean? So they're kind of, it gives you a moment, it gives you a moment of pause where you can look at it and kind of examine your unconscious and subconscious um, biases. And you may, I think, you know, something that's important with that is you may at the end of that examination come to the conclusion that, no, my book doesn't pass this particular test, but that is because of perfectly valid reason X. You know what I mean? But the point of the test is not necessarily whether to pass or fail it it's to undergo that critical examination of your own work right right or um someone else's work like this is the sort of thing that can be used as a framework to um you know lead arts criticism and other things like that's you know again it's just a it's a framework for discussing a certain issue yeah. as opposed to being like a litmus test of whether something is good or not and anytime anyone gets critical of this or any of these other like little bits of <clears throat> seemingly mechanical you know, progressive art censorship, you know, that everyone gets kind of mad at. Um, They want to take it as being much more stringent than it actually is, right? They want to make it into this big evil bit of conformity forcing as opposed to treating it as the very kind of loose and fluid and, you know, sort of introspective tool that it's meant to be, you know? Like, I mean, for instance, you know, you are someone who I've seen, you know, when you're tweeting out your manuscript list list stuff or when you're writing your descriptions of what it is you're looking for, you know, in submissions, um, you know, I've heard you say, I want books that have passed this test, you know, yep. don't, you know, send me things that have passed this. And I could... Specifically in science fiction and fantasy. Sure. Okay. So theoretically, I could be a science fiction writer sitting over here at my desk reading that and think, well, you know, Laura's not interested in seeing my book. My book doesn't pass the test. And... Maybe that, you know, there's a good chance that maybe that's simply true. Maybe you're not the right agent. But I think, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, mm-hmm. I think that maybe there's something like between the lines in the point you're making when you say that, which is that you want someone to have undergone that thinking. Whether, there, you know what I mean? There is a between the lines part. So so specifically, I require that all of my science fiction and fantasy submissions yeah. pass the Bechtel test. Okay. Right? Um, and, and here is my thinking. Yeah. Um, science fiction and fantasy is very, very, very much a boys club. You know, when you think about these works of quality, 
Mm-hmm. You know, when you're thinking about the canon, when you're thinking about the classics, you know, it is so heavily male. Yeah. And it is so, like, it's not just, like, that the, the, the authors were male. It is, like, actually exclusionary to women. Like, think about how often Mary Shelley gets excluded from the conversation about science fiction and fantasy, even though she, like, in, invented part of the genre with Frankenstein. Right? Yep. And so... Um, in science fiction and fantasy, in requiring these books to pass the Bechdel test, I'm saying a couple of things. I'm saying um, I want to engage with that canon and with that that background of being male only and kind of limiting to women, and I want to bring women into that. Um, I am so it's so it's not directly that just like I can't read books about men like white dudes on quests. It like just having so happens. It just so happens that <clears throat> in this particular genre, in this particular climate, yeah. it is something you're particularly more. So it actually the way that I'm engaging yeah. with the with the genre yeah. and the way that I'm engaging with the tropes therein. Yeah. I'm interested in a tweak to that genre and those tropes that involve women so that i would so actually then my assumption heading into that question was a little bit wrong that you actually are using it in this particular instance because of these specific genres within your specific taste within the specific genre you actually are using it as a i guess a litmus test of whether or not you're interested in um and it's less about me thinking that books that don't pass are bad. Right. And it's it's more about your about particular me. list taste. It's the same thing yeah. as saying I'm interested in books set in wherever. You know, I'm interested. Yeah. It's having a certain. Yeah. It's more about that because. Um, because. It, it, yeah. It's not really about quality necessarily. But like. Also, I have to think about as an agent, I am known for having a certain type of taste or a certain type of books. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and part of that is that I represent, you know, feminist books Yeah. and it's really hard to have a super feminist book when you don't have any female characters. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so like, if I'm subbing to an editor and they know that like I do awesome feminist books and I give them just like a bunch of dudes on a space station they're not going to know what they got from me, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I am in that way looking at it in content. But in, in all of the other genres, I'm just looking at it as kind of like an introspective right. tool. Right, sure. Yeah. That makes sense. And the second valuable thing, I b- beyond just kind of an introspective tool, I think, is as a data point, as kind of looking at the industry as a whole to see – how it has improved to kind of include representation of women, of people of color, of women and femmes of color. Um, That's kind of a larger society. Like, that's when those tests are really used um, to take a phrase from Alison Bechtel herself, a societal barometer Mm -hmm. to kind of test to make sure, okay, so, you know, the number of movies this year, actually, like, all of them... God willing, pass the Bechdel test. It's a means right? of guiding the discussion. It means that that female characters are going to have been proven in the capitalist market to be valued as much as the voices of men, mm-hmm. right? And so that kind of is 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 really valuable. Like, unfortunately, 
you know, those numbers don't exist. And I'm not sure if they will exist for books just because there are so many more books released and it's a lot easier to pass. Um, But kind of in terms of approaching lists or content or, you know, kind of curated uh, selections of books. I feel like that that cultural barometer is really, really key, yeah. which is another one of its benefits. No, that makes sense. I mean, I guess that kind of leads me into maybe the final bit of this particular conversation, which I guess, um, you know, to put it bluntly, do you feel this stuff works? <clears throat> like, I get, and I guess, part, <laughs> no, I mean, part of it is even defining like what works means in this context, but like, do you feel that the presence of these tests in the publishing community, um, whether it's the Bechtel or whether it's this new one, the Kent test, um, are these the sorts of things that actually you've found in your professional working life? And I know that I think that for me the answer is yes, but um, do you think that you've encountered, like, have you sensed things changing or have you sensed the change in the way people talk about books? Like, have these things actually provided the conversational framework and the uh, means of artistic introspection that that you think um, they're meant to induce? I think, I think yes. Um, I get a lot of queries from people going, well, you said I needed to pass the Bechtel test and I didn't know what that was, but I looked it up and turns out I do. And I think that that is a moment that I really, really value. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. that, that kind of, that, that kind of moment of, that that introspection um and and expanding that is is exciting to me you Mm -hmm. know we you and i are both english majors Mm -hmm. right and we spent four years looking at text through societal lenses through you know kind of gender and sexuality lenses from all like you know economic etc um and then when you come to publishing usually as deep as you can go is about themes you know yeah. it, it's kind of leaving leaving that cultural analysis behind yeah and i feel like a test like this is kind of just a shorthand easy way back into that it's an entry um, point into that yeah into into that assessment that i feel so at home with and i'm i'm so invigorated by yeah like i feel like that's changing i don't think that necessarily the definition of a good book is changing. Um, well, maybe not. I don't know. I've been hearing a lot about Ready Player One because the movie's coming out, right? <laughs> and Ready Player One is just like a white, straight right. fanboy, yeah, yeah, yeah. like homage, right? Just like a bunch of references to the, yeah. Right. And it's a very like readable book, but like there is, like I went reading it, I was like, there is no place for me in this. And I'm a gigantic <laughs> geek. I have a Buffy the Vampire yeah, Slayer yeah, yeah. tattoo. I play Dungeons and Dragons every week. Yeah. Like I should be the fan of this book. Yeah. But like but it's, it's really, for, yeah. it's really hard for me to do right. it because like I'm nowhere in it. Right. You know? Yeah. And it's, it's like not a single female creator in all of the all of the fandoms that are listed are mentioned in that book yeah and so like that i think that when ready player one came out 
you know, a lot of people were like, this is so great. It's good for the fans, etc. I've seen pages of Ready Player One, and it looks like shit. I'll be honest. It, like, it doesn't look like it's well written. Like, it, it's strangely compulsively readable. Really? It, it act, it's, it's paced very well. Yeah. Is what it is. Huh. It's paced very well. Huh. Um, when you when you get the excerpts of like the lists of like fanboy stuff, yeah. you lose it there. But it yeah. is very compulsively readable. Huh. Compulsively readable. Um, but I feel like the more that these kind of tests cause people to think more structurally about what they read, I feel like that definitely influences what they what they connect with and what they really appreciate yeah. and what they consider to be a good book. Yeah. So I think that Ready Player One is no longer a truly good book because so many people are finding it wanting. Yeah. I mean, and I think that any... Um any means through which we could look at something like that that truly is wanting and have come to that conclusion that we might not have, you know, where maybe it checks all the boxes yeah. that previously existed, but now through maybe a different mode of thinking, we can kind of see, well, hey, maybe this isn't actually very good. Um, I think that's valuable. Yeah. And I think that's powerful. And I think that's the sort of thing that could create opportunities for um, people who may not have gotten them in the past, which again, is like our main thing on this show, I think, <laughs> is for, in terms of what we want. So, good. Good. So, um, going to keep the tone a little bit serious here. Uh, so, we are recording this on March 12th. Uh -huh. If you are a romance author or read romance or, you know, anything adjacent, you will notice that today, March 12th, has been a very interesting day on Twitter, mm -hmm. specifically having to do with Riptide Publishing, which is a very large queer romance publisher. They kind of got the lock on the male-male romance, and they, they, they do very well with all of, um, all of those types of books. Well, Riptide had an issue. One of their authors, who was also published with Dream Spinner, which is another queer press, um, Riptide uh, had some problems with an author a week or two ago um, who had been found to have been like catfishing people, like yeah. out of money for imagined cancer and was like being very abusive, et cetera. Et cetera. Oh boy. Um, so, what that did is it kind of like turned up the dirt. Yeah. Um, and it has since been reported um, that the editorial director, or I should say the former editorial director of Riptide, Sarah Lyons, has behaved in ways that are um, racist and, you know, has engaged in a lot of sexual harassment and has kind of encouraged that from uh, her various employees. And so it had me thinking today. Yeah. Um, you know, there are all these authors that are kind of caught in the crosshairs that maybe haven't had any of this, uh, these experiences mm -hmm. and are just trying to like, just trying to publish a goddamn book. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it had me think we've talked about on the show a lot about, you know, kind of when you're caught in the controversy. Right. Like yeah. if you've, you know, been caught in a sexual harassment um you know, scenario with somebody in publishing and you've kind of been caught in that. Like, what does that mean? Uh, but we haven't really talked about what happens when you're caught in the controversy from kind of the sidelines. You know, when a press starts going toxic, what do authors do? When you're not involved in it, 
but your contract and your money and your brand is related to this well, and your shitstorm. Work and your yeah. time and your effort and everything you've put into trying to be a professional writer, yeah. you know? And so, like, for me, um, I look at these situations and I see them as almost similar to the power balance that we talked about when we had our kind of our Me Too episode, mm-hmm. you know, where we sort of came to this tacit conclusion that a lot of the time publishing views its own institutions as irreplaceable and authors as interchangeable. Yep. And here there's a similar dynamic in play, which is that when a press goes toxic, when it suddenly, you know, news starts to bubble up or, oh, man, that publisher isn't one that people – are viewing very favorably or are, you know, not necessarily thinking they'd want to publish with anymore. Um, suddenly that's something that then becomes an author's problem, right? Yeah. It's, it becomes an issue that an author might suddenly feel like they have to answer for. Well, why, Hey, why are you publishing with them? You know? And it's to me, I guess, first and foremost, it feels incredibly unfair Um, I think that it takes the moral responsibility of a given situation and places it on exactly the wrong person. Um, I, when, you know, when a press, because in a lot of ways, and maybe this is the way to think of it, a press, a press is outward facing talent. You know, like the thing that when you think of a publisher, what are you thinking of? You're thinking of books, right? And the books are written by people who don't actually work at the press, which is sort of an interesting like dichotomy you've got um you know a press building its brand and its identity entirely based on the work of people who don't actually work there right like at least on an outward facing level on a commercial level and what happens then is that people have to or authors have to feel like they're in a position where they've got to answer for it where they've got to make a call on whether or not they need to address it online or whether they should just stay quiet whether it's okay to continue with publication at this certain house. They need to figure out if right. they want to side with the author or if they want to side with the press that is responsible for paying their bills. Yeah, and it's just, uh, yeah, people start to, you know, especially when, like, boycott talk happens, like, well, let's not buy from this press. It's like, okay, well, who are you hurting? You're probably hurting the author who has, who's, this was this was their shot, right? Like, so many times with publication, especially in, um, you know, debut and stuff, and really with, I would say, the vast majority of authors, like, having a publication contract or a publication opportunity in place and yanking that away is no small feat yeah. you know like or so the idea that you would like dis- decide to not go with the publisher that has decided to publish your book is it's rare and hard because you don't get many chances at public like yeah. anyone who's listening to the show probably knows like getting a book published is hard <laughs> and it involves a lot of work. That's an it, understatement. No, and it yeah. involves a lot of failure, and it involves a lot of trial and error, and it involves a lot of sunk cost of your own time and all this stuff. And so then you finally get the deal in place. You finally get what you want, and now you find out that the press you're working with is toxic, and you have to answer for that. That's incredibly unfair. Yeah. And it's incredibly it, – like I, like I said, like it puts the moral um, question on the wrong person. And so for me, I am someone who thinks that – any author who would look at that situation and say, you know what, I want to I want to stick this out. I want to publish with this press because it's important for me to get my book out. Like, I don't begrudge them that then that in any way, shape or form. I think that that is a perfectly reasonable choice because I think that the power dynamics such that they are are um, skewed so heavily against them in the first place that to ask them to take even more of the moral duty on is irresponsible. 
have been thinking a lot today about the authors that are already under contract yeah. and the um kind of kind of what to do, right? Like when somebody else, like already when you when you do traditional publishing, like the idea is is that you're giving up a lot of control and a lot of rights to have your book published feasibly for a benefit, right? You're giving up 92% of your yeah. of your earnings. Like at best to 85. Yeah, at yeah. best 85. Me, well, 75 for ebooks. But right. um, the idea is that you're giving up all this money and all this control for other people to get you places mm-hmm. where you can't go, right? To to kind of attach you to their good name and push it forward. Um, when you have a contract and when you're kind of like working and you're just like, I just want to get my books out. Like, I just want to make money. I just want to, you know, do the do nothing bad has happened to me. I just want to, you know, I want to do it. Um, but then it comes across, then it comes out that, that the people that you're doing this with have problems, you know, Um, whether they're toxic or they're abusive or, you know, whatever reason, you know, there, it, it becomes really difficult because you are really relying on kind of the, the good feelings, you know, the goodwill of this press, because if they, if they don't like you, they just won't publicize your book and then you're not going to make any money. And then if you don't make any money, you might not earn out. And if you don't earn out, you might not be able to get a deal with somebody else. That's the thing. It's like you can get by not appeasing the people you're currently with, you actually shoot yourself in the foot for your ability to go somewhere else. You know, you also, you also run the risk of by not saying anything by taking or by saying something in favor of the publisher, taking on a lot of flack about, you know, not, not uh supporting people and kind of being on the wrong side of history but like do you see the lose-lose you've just painted it's totally it's totally unfair to the person who's actually um in the most vulnerable and who's in the most vulnerable vulnerable position and who has done the most work and i think that it's i don't know it's tough and like i it made me think a lot today as we were kind of thinking about um doing this topic um way back when when we did uh when Roxane Gay decided to leave her publisher because they signed, uh, because they signed Milo, right? Milo Yiannopoulos, right? yeah. Um, you know, Roxane Gay decided. You know, she released a statement. She said, "Well, I'm not going to publish with Simon and Schuster anymore because of this." And it was such a notable thing, right? Because she was someone. She had this cachet. Because she has like climbed the mountain to the other side of clout. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like where she's like on the. Clout Mountain. She, exa- <laughs> she is the king of Clout Mountain. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things where she can, um, you know, having the sway that she does that so few other authors have, she can say, okay, you know what? I am going to do something else. And what was notable about it is how except- how exceptional it was in every sense of the term. Like how she's someone who actually does have the career and the cachet and the reputation and the pure and the finances and the finances and the pure star power to say, you know what, I'm just going to take my business elsewhere because I don't believe in this. And it was, you know, I think we both applauded this, the decision when it came out. Um, but it also made me think like, man, what about these mid-list authors? They're probably, even if they feel the same way, they probably aren't necessarily able to do what the about the thing. debuts? What about the yeah. people who just started yeah. their four like, book contract yeah. and their one book in and they right. have to like, right make money for all the work that they do for the next three books. Right. My question is this, Eric. Uh If you 
we're an author. So there's there's a big difference about what you do privately, privately and what you do publicly mm-hmm. in a situation like this as kind of a bystander bystander caught in in this shitstorm mm-hmm. essentially. What do you think that you would do? What would I do yeah. if I were someone like this? What would this? you do? I would probably I mean I guess it depends what my options were. You know, the first, like if did I did everybody want my book? When I was deciding between publishers, like, did my book go at auction to, you know, between five? Let's say no, because most books sure, don't. Sure. Like, okay, so if this was my only, if it was, if the option was publish this book here or don't publish at all. Well, let's say you're right? already under contract. Sure. What would you say? I would say that, I mean, you probably, you probably just go through with it. You yeah. know, you probably just, um, you know, you do get this for yourself, side. you know, like you get to the other side. I think one thing that often also gets over exaggerated in publishing circles and in especially like online like in publishing twitter and book twitter and like writer specific conversations is i don't think the general reading public makes the association between publisher and author quite as strongly as all we as all of us do Mm. you know like if you like if you're just like someone who really likes reading and you don't really care about the publishing industry and you're not a writer and you're not doing that if you're just like a good you're like a reader who enjoys you know, books, you're going and you're not really paying attention to publisher that much, right? Like you're paying attention to author, you're paying attention to or genre, you're going to the shelf. You like, like, I think to the lay person, the connection between publisher and author isn't as a, isn't as present and isn't as apparent. Like a lot of the things we think of as in terms of like prestige and power and things like that, those are things for our end. Those are conversations that. Um, will people, affect the next steps of your career, but won't necessarily affect but in terms the of, readership. Yeah, but like yeah. no one, no one walking into Barnes and Noble to buy your book, who hasn't been like obsessively staring at writer Twitter, <laughs> is going to think about this stuff when it happens. You know, they're going to see your book and decide whether or not they want to buy it or not. And that's, I think, one more reason why, one, it's you know, writers should feel bolder to take the opportunities presented to them. And two, why it's important for the publishing industry to hold its own accountable because the general public isn't going to because that connection isn't drawn. You know, like we don't think about like publishing isn't filled with public figures in the way other entertainment industries are. You know, like you don't know. I feel like most readers like they can rattle off their favorite directors. Can they rattle off their favorite editors? No. You know what I mean? Like it's not it's not the same thing. It's a much more behind the, you know, behind the private window industry. And so there's, in a way, there's a luxury for an author, you know, and... Um, Even though it might not seem it in the moment. In the moment and within circles, I think it matters. But, like, no, I think you take the opportunity if you're a writer. And I guess, so to answer your question, like, what would I do? I would do it. And I would, if I really felt strongly that my publisher was behaving poorly, maybe, like, you know, down the line... You know, I would I would say something, but it's, um, I don't know. It's tough. Like I wanna I wanna sit here and say no. I'd pull my book. I would say I don't want to do it. But like I don't know who that helps because it doesn't actually really change. Like if I'm a debut author of Little Clout, it doesn't actually change anything. It doesn't actually make the, a statement. It doesn't really do anything, mm-hmm. and it's other than all maybe it does helping is, you sleep at night. All, and and you know and I guess that you know. 
as I talk it through, you know, that matters. You know, you, you have to be able to stick to your guns on certain things. But but if also not some... sleeping at night has to do with how much money I have in the bank. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I think also, though, that like um, I guess it would depend how much yeah. it involved me, you know. Like, if this was something totally separate from me and the company was, you know, if it was, I don't know. I guess I just, I would have to gauge how close it felt to my situation. But I don't, again, I just don't feel that it's fair to put the moral onus on writers in this situation. I think that a big uh, issue with this is that there's, there's kind of a blending of private and public here. Yeah. Like, I feel like everybody thinks they or feels that they should make a statement on Twitter or a statement on Facebook or on their blog or something Um, where I feel like something that I mean, but that's like a very dangerous thing, right? Like that is something where you're opening yourself up to harassment. You're opening yourself up to doxing. You know, you we're in this weird age where everyone feels they got to make a statement or you're inserting yourself into a conflict where like all you want to do is like keep your head head down and do whatever. But I think that something that we should be not necessarily focusing on, but one thing that we should be remembering as this happens more and more, which to be clear, it will Mm -hmm. happen more and more um, is that. People should should really understand the power that they hold in private spaces as well. Uh-huh. You know, like a, 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 you know, conversation, you know, an email conversation with the publisher of an imprint. Yeah. Or, you know, speaking with other authors and kind of banding together and, and to, to yep. achieve something, to achieve change, you know, to, you know, work with a couple of other author, authors to refuse to work with somebody that you know is abusive you know like that sort of thing i feel like can make as much difference but maybe be a little bit safer mm-hmm. um which you know but that's that's a hard thing to gauge you know as somebody who's not in it and as somebody who you know is just kind of like seeing it on twitter that's something you don't necessarily think about um but i've been thinking about it all day and I really do believe I would, you know, like keep my head down, like keep doing the deal, you know, say something about like, you know what, I'm listening to I'm listening and I believe you. And, you know, but but we talk so often in this business about not letting anybody have a right to your earnings, like to your money, like take it where you can. Yeah. And like, I also think that um, there are ways to show support and show solidarity and show defiance to a situation that don't also involve yanking your own book you know yeah. what i mean like there are ways to you know be supportive and support other people and do all these things that don't involve sacrificing your one shot at the writing career you were trying to have yeah. you know and i don't know because if you're willing and you're seriously thinking about sabotage i shouldn't use the word sabotage no, but basically like yeah definitely not sabotage yeah. but um, if, if you're thinking about kind of making a political statement with your own career, right. like you are absolutely the person that should be publishing. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Like, that's right? the thing. Like if you're someone who's thinking this deeply about it, you've probably written a book that's fairly progressive. Okay. So the last thing we need to talk about today is the, mo- the most important. Oh, thing. it's very important. Um, <laughs> and it's something I've been dealing with now that I've moved. Um, we put in 
so we we put we have the movers come. You know, we've got this new place, right? We've got our furniture and everything, and we're dealing with bookshelves, right? And we've got the we've put one bookshelf, one tall one, right in the front entryway, which and I have as well. Both of us have right, entryway right, right. bookshelves, and we've sent it. We've set it there, and we've put it in, on display. And now the big question has arisen: What books go on the front entryway? And this was something that I like sat up many hours into the night dealing with the I, other day. I did many hours as well with because that. because the question becomes: What what books do you want to show others that you've read, you know? <laughs> and so I got, like, sorting, and I got, like, putting things on. And I actually, like, developed this whole system where I would bring down a stack, and then, like, there would be, like, a wait list over here, and there was, like, a little <laughs> set of candidates right here. Like, I had some, like... It was, like, college I had early, admissions. Oh, it was very much like college admissions. I had early admissions in <laughs> who got who got to go right on the, right on the shelf right away. Um, what did you end up doing? Well, so I ended up... Um, my first pass... You know, this will take some editing, I'm sure. Yes. Before anyone could ever possibly come into my home. No one's allowed to see this shelf until not it's absolutely perfect. No, absolutely not. You're the worst <laughs> one. You're the, absolutely the least person who's allowed to see this before it's done. Um, but I am the worst. We just went, I just went with like the books that I liked the best, like the books that I thought were the most, that I guess I had been like thinking about, you know, the most, like the ones that felt the most substantial to me. And I mm. guess what, what ended up happening. And this was something um, that my fiance called out immediately was that I had picked all the like quote unquote pretentious books, yeah, and put on the shelf. And so Do you have David Foster Wallace up there, of course. Yeah, I've got him. <laughs> I've got everybody else. I've got you know the whole gang. All the, whole... the all the all the Jonathans. <laughs> there are many Jonathans on the shelf. <laughs> there are a lot of Jonathan, but there's a lot of other really good stuff too. I mean, it ended up being I think it's, I mean it's a good shelf of books, you know. But like, it's I don't know like. The question that is currently sitting in our heads is like, do we need to introduce, do we need to swap some things out for some pulp? Mm. You know, do we need to take a few Jonathan? You're using do we the need royal to... we. Why are you using the royal we? Jess has I... nothing to do with this. It's all I was you. Thinking, I was thinking we need to like subtract some, you some know, Franzen like and minus, put some like maybe in like there. minus a few Jonathans and add in <laughs> like just some, I don't know, just like some book that we had, you know, I don't know. It's, um, so what the, is what is the impression you want? But this is somebody the, coming so into your the home. impression is the thing, and this is the other part about it is because you can also come off as like calculatedly nonchalant mm. about it. Like if I just have like the perfect number of non-pretentious books on the shelf, that's impossible, pe- right? People are gonna come over and be like, "Oh wow, you just like threw some of these in to like make it seem like you're less of an asshole." You know what I mean? Like it's <laughs> it's terrible. Like and. And, like, you know, the places I used to work, like, there's, like, some OUP books on there. So it's, like, some of them are, like, these really annoying history books, you know, and stuff. Mm. And, like, I don't know. It's, like. Some have, like, birds on the cover. It's, like, a little much. I'll say this right now. Like, it needs some work. Like, it's too, it's too much. And so I'm, like, trying to figure out what to do. And there was a while where I thought my strategy was going to be just hardcovers. Nope. But, like, now it's. And the other thing that keeps happening is I really wanted to do it alphabetically. Also, no. No, 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 no. It is alphabetical, but the problem is I kept finding A's, and so I had to like scoot everything down, and it was this horrible thing. You should do the thing that librarians do, where like you don't fill each shelf, so that when something new goes in, you don't have to move everything. Oh my god, I I'd never even heard of that technique. But it would have you never been to a library? It would have saved me. It would have saved me an hour the other night. (laughs) 
of me just like scooting I'm books. like in my pajamas at like midnight like scooting the J's over you know what I mean like Mar- <laughs> Marlon James's book has like moved down like three shelves at this point <laughs> like it was it was really bad so, um but anyway I've got an aneurysm about this now so my question is to you yeah. is like how are you organizing how did yourself? I do it okay yeah. so here's the thing yeah. I am a very intuitive shelver Mm. So I, I didn't know that was a thing. But I please, so please so tell. I never organized my books by author or you know by when I get them or by like how they're bound or anything like that. Like I've always organized my books with like this is going to sound really corny, Eric. You're going to mm-hmm. make fun of me like by to, how yeah. they feel. Oh my god. <laughs> so I. So it so I've got these gigantic bookshelves downstairs and then I've got one in my office and I've got one in my entryway um, and I've got a couple more downstairs as well. And so like I start going upper left to upper right, but mm-hmm. then I go upper right down the right side and then I branch off in two directions and it's all because of like how <laughs> And it's all because of how it feels, right? So, like, I start Yeah, with, there's no rules. There's no rules there's to no society. Rules. We don't live in a world with laws. So, we can just do whatever we but want. But, like, I can find every single one of these books. And so it's basically... I'm glad you can. So, like, I have, for example, all of the books that I loved when I was the same age. Uh-huh. Right? So, like, those kind of all give me the same yeah. feeling. They give me all the, like, they're they're kind of thematically similar mm-hmm. because of the time and the place with which I read them, mm-hmm. right? And then, you know, I kind of have various, like, books that I get from editors or for my job. I kind of have those in a separate place, Um you know, but so I had the, 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 and so that's all my downstairs, right? Like I originally, like in my last house, I had my most beloved books in the bedroom. Yeah. Right. Like I had like this bookshelf in the bedroom and it was beautiful. It looked like a, like a client, like a ladder yeah. from Beauty and the Beast. It was gorgeous, which I have now. It's just like filled with anthropology textbooks now. Yeah. Um, but so I had it in my bedroom so like I could look at it because it wasn't about other people. It was about me. Right. And so when I decided to do everything, I thought that I was going to put the books that I loved most upstairs where I am the most often. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that it was by the front door. Yeah. And I don't want anybody seeing my like rip to shred Tamara Pierce books. It's like those are just for me. Well, so that's right? the thing. It's those like maybe I need me. some rip to shred Tamara Pierce on my shelf. Maybe you can't have mine. I'm gonna steal some. You can't have mine. Uh listener, listener, I'm gonna steal some. <laughs> so I so those I I kept, you know, kind of like downstairs, like in the basement where I spend a lot of time, but they're just for me. And so my front entryway, what I decided is it's kind of a combination of like my favorite books of the last year, plus books I really want to read, plus books I have, but have been very like critically acclaimed and I haven't necessarily read yet. So it's like Hmm. a combo of my faves and like books that I'm proud to own, but haven't yet read so that like they're in my face all the time. I used to, in my last house, have a giveaway bookshelf, which I did away with because now I have a basement and I don't have to give away anything. Well, I can never just be an evil me, crone. Well, you, you never gave me anything. I gave you lots of books. Which book did you give me? You didn't give me a single one. I book. gave you lots book? of books. Name I lent book. you The Hate You Give. Oh, you did? Well, you lent. That's different than giving. Oh, I, I gave you, um, oh, 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 The Wanderers. The Ark of the Wanderers. I, was gonna, <laughs> I think it was a galley. It is a galley. 
Well, yeah. I mean, so sure. if you're you have one. Me, of the, I would actually like that back. Uh, like okay, that so back. I lend lots of books. Mm-hmm. I lend lots of books. Yeah. So I had this like giveaway bookshelf. Uh huh. Um. Oh no, I got you a lot of books. Remember? Oh, you've I've... got me a lot of books. That one time you went, yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you about the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me with my bookshelf? Yeah. Did it fall? No. Did it kill you? No, you're still here. I mean, inside it did. <laughs> What did but it do? one time, so I was right out of college and I was at home preparing to move to New York City, right? And it was, I was packing up my things in Colorado um, where my family lives. And I had just gotten the job um, at Oxford and I was ready to, all, to move out to New York City and do all this stuff. And I packed up my books, right? And, um, I took every book that I liked, like my favorite books, the uh-huh. ones that I liked the absolute best. Uh-huh. I put them in this little box and I like packaged them all up. And the idea was my parents were going to ship them out, right? Instead of me having to like take them on the plane. Yep. And the one box that you loved the that most. I loved the most got lost and it's gone. So basically what happened, like from age zero to 22, I took every book I ever liked put it in a box and just lost the box and so like that's it's, that is honestly like the most distressing thing i've ever it was heard. horrible i don't i still like to this day I, I think about putting things in that box there are books in there that i'll never get back um and i don't i, I don't even have the heart to, to rebuy them like my copy of like amazing adventures of cavalier and clay like i don't i don't ever want to own that book again even though it's like, it hurts so much it hurts too much it hurts too deep <clears throat> and now i have this shelf and i wonder laura if what it would look shelf, like if you had had that box. If this shelf is just like a psychic response to having one to having lost that box back in the day, it you might know, be. this is it's you know we all process trauma in different ways. I mean, the um, so the the most traumatic experience I've ever had with the bookshelf is when my beloved fiance once asked me, and this is a direct quote. Do you really need all these books? <laughs> and mind you, like they were away in a bookshelf. I think he was just like trying to put stuff away and was like frustrated that the shelves were already filled. Um, and I didn't even respond. I just gave him a look. And then like a day later, he's like, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> and like that was like the first time that I was like, I could murder you. Like mm-hmm. I could, I could yep. murder you. Yep. Um, like I pledged my life, to, but like I could also murder you. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was super fun. But I think about that a lot when like he had a shelf for his records, and like I had a bunch of bookshelves, and then I had to like encroach on his record shelf because like I had too many books, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna feel a little bit bad, but I'm not gonna feel that bad because yes, I do need that many books. Anyway, um. Time for the pub tip, and then we can leave you be. Um, So we've talked a little bit before about the questionnaire that you get when you sign a publishing contract. Um, And a lot of the time it's asking you, like, everyone you've ever met and people who might endorse your book. But one of the things that is very often overlooked is a cover design request form. A lot of the times it will have, um, you know, asking about colors or asking about elements or, you know, kind of like what you're envisioning for the cover. And it's something that's taken into, um, you know, or a happy looking grasshopper. It's something that's taken into account when um, when designers are working on your cover. 
Uh, and I, my, my big pub tip for you all today is to think about that before you get the for, like before you get the form because when you get the form you'll be like oh I you're like high on signing mm-hmm. gas yeah. and you're like I'm just so excited that you're gonna publish my book and you don't really think super critically about it yeah um, which leads to you know you maybe hating your book cover or something like that yep um, so I want to challenge you all to go to Goodreads to go to Amazon to go to your local bookstore to go to Pinterest and kind of figure out where the intersection is between your aesthetic and what like the current prevailing design trends in your genre are and like know what those are so you can point people to specific books and specific projects and specific elements that you really really like because then everyone's going to be a lot happier throughout the process you know that's that's useful advice for like once you're getting published and once you're you know trying to deal with covers but that's also good advice just for writing your book I think like there's something about like going and looking at a bookstore in the shelf that your book would theoretically be on and being able to visualize, hey, how would my book be sitting here? And like what books are like it and sitting around that I think can actually jar loose some good creative thoughts. You know, like how does my book exist in relation to everyone else's is always a conversation you should be having with yourself. And um, it's going to make you better at pitching. It's going to be make, make you better at describing your book to others. It's going to make you better when the time comes to deal with your cover. Um, but I think that's great advice. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this, our 62nd episode of Print Run. Remember to tune in this week for our query show and send us your suggestions for our special 100 patron episode. And we will see you for a regular episode next Tuesday. Bye.